No Sodes, Woo, and Garbage in the Oceans. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, I'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. This is a show that celebrates curiosity, and I'm your host, Mike McCarg, known online as Ask Science Mike. This show is a lot of fun, and we've got some great, I mean great, science questions this week. So what do you say? Let's get it started. Save the date, <laughs> okay, because on January 11th, I'm going to be at Trinity Church in Buffalo, New York. If you're in Buffalo, I'd love to see you at Trinity Church for their Fresh Voices series. There'll be more information about that on AskScienceMike.com soon, but for now, just go ahead and save the date. And also, I'd like you to save the date if you're in Fort Smith, Arkansas, or more accurately, save the dates is I will be in Fort Smith doing a series of events uh, from January like 21st to 26th. So if you're in Fort Smith, Arkansas, save the dates there. Again, there will be more information to follow, uh, but I just know some of you might be firming up plans in the new year, and I'd like to be a part of it if you're in Buffalo or Fort Smith. Also, uh, I said I've been saying this at the end of the show, but maybe I thought I'd say it at the beginning this week. Ask Science Mike has actually never been more popular in terms of downloads. The show is getting downloaded a great deal every week, but it's we don't have the number of questions coming in that we used to, and I've been trying to figure that out. Um, and I think it might be I used to, on every episode, say, hey, send in your questions, and then I just stopped doing that. We got a lot of new people listening and they may not realize how to send in a question. Here's the thing. If you have a question about literally anything, especially a question that you felt maybe judged for not, uh, if you'd have asked before that isn't safe in your community, that's what this show is about. And you can send in your own question via AskScienceMike.com. There's two ways to do that. One is you can fill out a form that basically sends uh, Caitlin, the show's producer, an email, and she looks through all of those, and Andrew looks through all those and, and picks uh, some that then the patrons on the Ask Science Mike Patreon page vote on, and they become a part of the show. And you can also send a voicemail. Uh, you'll notice that we do two voicemail questions pretty much every week, um, and we get way fewer voicemail questions than email questions. So if you want your question on the show, your best chance is to go to AskScienceMike.com and then send me a voicemail. And Andrew and Caitlin will hear that, and the patrons will pick their favorites, and then boom, next thing you know, that's how questions show up on Ask Science Mike. We do get enough questions, of course, to do the show every week, um, but you know, I just want to make sure that we always have enough questions uh, to, to, to keep the show going. So, uh, because I don't have anything to talk about without questions, by the way, if you all have been listening for a while, you know that... Uh, I don't really know what to talk about until you ask me. And then I get really excited about your questions. So the way you participate in this show, and anyone can do that, is go to AskScienceMike.com. 
And then you just scroll down to the bottom of the page and you can submit a question right there. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Clint. I'm a huge fan of the show and your work. I've been listening almost since day one, but this is my first question. So I recently discovered a friend of mine is an anti-vaxxer. Since I'm an Enneagram 5, I told her I'd do plenty of research before I decided whether or not she was crazy. So I've read a few books uh, on vaccines in general, but my question isn't about vaccines. It's about homeoprophylaxis or homeopathic prophylaxis. So instead of vaccinating her children, she's chosen uh, to use a homeopathic method, which employs giving her kids something called a no-sode that is supposed to have the same effects of vaccinating, but without all the chemicals and stuff that comes in vaccines that anti-vaxxers are afraid causes things like autism, which it obviously doesn't, but that's what she believes. So what is the science, if any, behind the use of no-sodes? Have any reputable studies confirmed the usefulness, effectiveness, or safety of no-sodes? Does science have anything to say at all about no-sodes? Um, thank you for considering my question. Your question is a great question and a timely one. And uh, gosh, the chemical thing. <laughs> it really gets me. There's nothing wrong with chemicals. We'd be dead without chemicals. There would be no life on Earth without chemicals. Let's be clear that water is a chemical. And water's not bad for you. In fact, it's quite essential for your life. So uh, I get annoyed when people use the word chemical to villainize uh, a given product or treatment. You know, something contains chemicals. Well, of course it does. Most things are made of chemicals, especially biological things. Now, some types of chemicals are carcinogenic. They cause cancer. Some types of chemicals do uh, get absorbed into our bodies and, and stored or metabolized in strange ways. So I understand where this line of thinking is trying to go, but just dismissing things because it's a chemical lacks so much nuance that it becomes useless and, in fact, harmful. So I wanted to start there with the fear of chemicals and vaccinations. Um, orange juice is chemicals, right? And I mean like literally squeezed from an organic orange that's never been touched by pesticides, and that orange juice would be full of chemicals. Uh, a kale smoothie is full of chemicals, etc., etc. Okay, just had to get that out of the way. Um, let's talk about before we talk about if they work, no so let's talk about what they are. Uh, they're really gross. <laughs> I mean, really, really, really gross. Um, to make a no so basically, um, you take dried fluids and or tissues from someone who's had a given disease. And then you use sympathetic magic, which is curing like with like, to take that infected tissue and or, or, or dried fluids and dilute it. I mean, well, to be clear, we're talking about literally dried blood and or mucus acting as the um, initial composition of these homeopathic solutions called nosodes. And then they are diluted an absolutely absurd amount. Um a common ratio would be one in 
10 to the negative 60 uh, parts. Um, that uh, that's uh, that's that's insane. You, I mean, you're talking about. I don't even know the math. Billions or trillions of doses to get even one molecule from the original, I guess, fluid sample. There. This is also how essential oils are often made. By the way, it's not science. There's nothing scientific about that. You know, I guess the idea is to distill some kind of energy. It's absurd. It's complete nonsense. Um, so you've diluted this so that statistically there's not even a single molecule or atom from the original now in your mixture or tincture or whatever uh, you're making. And because of that, of course, there is no science to support no as substitutes for vaccines. And I mean none at all when we've done studies we and and we have actually done research on nosodes the results won't surprise you a bit uh if we look at vaccines vaccines are about a hundred percent effective at preventing diseases for which vaccines are designed to protect you from about 100 percent uh placebo uh is right around 20 to 25 and nosodes land on average, at 22%. These things are literal placebos. There is no medical value beyond placebo to these things at all. On the other hand, when they're improperly made, when they're not diluted enough, they can be vectors for infectious disease because dried blood and or mucus and or tissue is used to make these things. So, on the one hand, they won't protect your children from vaccine from diseases which we have vaccines for. On the other, if they're improperly made, they can actually get your child or you sick with something else. My gosh, hard pass on no sods for me. Um, yeah, I mean this is this is why anti science movements concern me they have a real and significant public health cost when children don't take vaccinations other children who are immunocompromised or for legitimate reasons can't take vaccinations they have an elevated risk of getting sick but then healthy children who could have a vaccine not only might get the disease but often these homeopathic solutions to try to avoid vaccination can cause unrelated health problems this is the downside of internet knowledge. We have to have media literacy, friends. We have to look at evidence. And I, I hear the arguments that the scientific method is not perfect, that there are structural biases in science, that we don't publish negative results very often, that there is a reproducibility crisis. Yes, yes, yes to all that. The work of science can and must improve. And, and good, rigorous, methodical data tells us vaccines don't cause autism. That vaccines are, in fact, safe. That vaccines are one of the most successful medical interventions in human history at preventing disease and improving quality of life. And that, yes, 
many homeopathic solutions are beyond useless and can actively be dangerous or harmful. Homeopathic is often another word for a treatment proved ineffective, proven ineffective in research. Ugh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. So, just say no to no-sodes, my friends. That is not a way to keep you, your family, or your friends safe from infectious disease. And in fact, might actually make you more prone to get them. I just love KiwiCo. KiwiCo is got to be one of my all-time favorite sponsors on Ask Science Mike because they make really cool hands-on projects and toys designed to expose children to science, technology, engineering, art, and math, also known as STEAM. KiwiCo is based right in the state of California in Mountain View, and they're on a mission to help kids build confidence and create problem-solving skills all while having fun. These are just incredible products. They're called crates. They come in a, a variety of lines. They're all really exciting. And the, the engineers and experts at KiwiCo spend thousands of hours designing and testing each and every crate, and they are simply a delight. There's seven different lines for different ages and age appropriate, including the new Eureka crates for ages 14 to 104 I personally have signed up for the Eureka, Eureka Crate service after getting jealous of watching my daughters open their Tinker Crates and Doodle Crates. And of course, I see all of you sending me your pictures on social media of your children using those and the Panda Crates for very little ones, Koala Crates, the classic Kiwi Crate for ages 5 to 8, and the Atlas Crate ages 6 to 11. These are great projects that teach kids how to be fearless innovators, to feel empowered, and they're also just super, super fun. And it's that time of year when everybody's trying to think about what to get people for the holidays. Do you just go to Toys R Us uh, and get another toy? Is Toys R Us even around anymore? <laughs> Do you just go to a, a retailer and, and buy a toy that you know maybe other relatives get as well? Why not do something unique? For the kids in your life this year. And send a KiwiCo subscription. This holiday, give the gift of hands-on learning for hands-on projects for tomorrow's makers. And you could do that really easily. Just go to KiwiCo.com slash science. And that way you can um, not only give a child the joy of fun learning, uh, this year, but you can also get your first crate completely for free. So as you go down your shopping list, invest in the makers and thinkers of tomorrow by sending a Kiwi crate, kiwico.com slash science. And of course, I also want you to know about BetterHelp, uh, which is a, a sponsor I'm thrilled to work with because they're focused on mental health. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that is there for you. And they allow you to connect with a professional counselor in a way that's safe and private. It's very convenient. I've told you before that sometimes getting to the therapist's office is too much work for me. And I spend my whole session calming down from trying to drive across Los Angeles and find a parking space. But with BetterHelp, I'm able to write from the comfort of an app, connect with a licensed therapist 
who specializes in the kinds of issues that I'm facing. And BetterHelp can help you find someone as well. All you do is go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike and fill out a brief questionnaire that will let the experts at BetterHelp assess your needs and connect you with a counselor that is perfect for you. And of course, if the counseling relationship doesn't work, they can connect you with a new counselor anytime for no additional charge. Best of all for me, BetterHelp's really affordable and available on a sliding scale based on income. It's really a phenomenal service, and I'd encourage you to start today by going to betterhelp.com slash science mic to take the first step to better mental health for you. Our next question was an email. It reads, Dear Science Mike, I have been going through the process of deconstructing my Christian faith for the past three years now, and you and the liturgists have been truly life-saving in this journey. I'm now at a place where I want to explore the possibility of reconstructing a new framework of spirituality for myself, but I'm finding that the process of deconstruction and disillusionment that I've undergone has left me very skeptical and wary of other spiritual teachers. Particularly, I'm drawn to ideas within Eastern religions, but have seen multiple instances of these ideas used to exploit searching people for capital gain. I'm a PhD student in the health sciences and know far too many examples of groundless pseudoscience being proclaimed as cure, but also know of examples such as mindfulness and yoga, which have roots in Eastern religion, but have shown genuine potential for healing. How do I distinguish the woo from the truth? How do I navigate the world of spirituality with healthy skepticism while also keeping my heart open to finding meaning? I love this question. It feels almost like a letter. I think this is like the essential struggle for people today. There has been so much harm done to the world and to the people of the world by people following a religious belief system. I just don't think there's any way around the reality that Western Christianity played a big role in the building of empire and colonization. And today is American Christianity is deeply wed to a very exploitive system of capitalism that hurts people. It hurts everyone. It hurts the people marginalized by those systems and the people supposedly benefiting from it. So what, what do we do? You know, I had a very similar experience to you myself where um, I started to question Christianity but still wanted to be close to God. So I started to study Hinduism and Taoism and Buddhism and Islam and the Baha'i faith. I went on a tour of world religions seeing if maybe I just had the wrong one. And I had a real tendency to glamorize and get excited about theological ideas that were new to me, especially because reading about these things in books instead of experiencing them in community let me avoid the ways in which those religious systems had been co-opted in their own societies and used to marginalize and harm people. 
I also noticed that I, I tended to learn about world religions, which is a, a problematic way of describing non-Christian, non-Western religions, primarily from white men and women who themselves either didn't follow those religions and study them academically, or converted to those religions and popularized them in the West, and in doing so made lots of money. And that insight made me very reticent to discuss my dabbling in Eastern religion publicly. I didn't want to be a Western white appropriator and popularizer of other faith traditions. Of course, if you know my story, I didn't spend a long time in those spaces. I ended up uh, becoming an atheist, leaving faith behind, then having a mystical experience, and grew to a new era where I appreciated and continue to appreciate the personal impacts that a faith journey has on someone's life. Gosh, one of my favorite things is to hear about people's spiritual practices, spiritual beliefs, and spiritual feelings. It's one of the great joys of my life and work is to talk to people from so many faith backgrounds. Every kind of Christian you can imagine. Literal witches. (laughs) Muslims. New Age spiritualists, Buddhists, Hindus, Taoists, just the whole beautiful rainbow of spiritual experiences. I value hearing about it so much. But I hold these religious notions very loosely. I view them as part of the human experience. I don't project them into necessarily how I understand or relate to physical reality or cosmology or the structure of things. These are mythic, poetic, allegorical manifestations of the human experience to me. And as long as I hold them loosely, I find them deeply, deeply valuable. So is it woo when I have a friend who channels energy through a crystal? Well, I mean, if we're talking about healing disease, probably. It's going to be probably placebo-effective. But the qualitative aspect of their experience, I'm fascinated by and value deeply. Um, I'm a bad person to ask about truth. My, my epistemology has been roughshod and weak for years. All knowledge is provisional to me. I'm looking on a, a spectrum from uncertainty to eh, maybe, and rarely, if ever, find myself confident in a given idea. There's just too many ways to take things apart through deconstruction. So what I'm finding instead is that being present in faith practices allows me to find meaning in life, and that itself is valuable enough. What do I look for? One, I value faith experiences that aren't exclusivist, meaning my faith is better than other people's faith. I value faith experiences that are inclusive, meaning uh, I believe all people deserve a right to spiritual experiences. I value faith experiences that are not exploitive. Um, You know, when I had a big hospital bill, 
a little while back. Some people encouraged me to start doing one-on-one spiritual coaching for a high fee based on the fact that I'm internet famous and some people would probably pay a lot per hour to talk to me about faith experiences and I just couldn't do that. It felt wrong. It felt inappropriate and it felt exploitive. So I did not do that. <laughs> um, and I think that's what you look out for. Is this exclusivist? Like this is the only right way to have faith? Is it exclusive and that some people aren't allowed to have this experience? Is it exploitive? Meaning, am I using a faith system to extract something from other people? Um, that could be currency, capital, material resources, people's time, people's energy, people's emotional support. Um, if you're doing any of those, if any of those things are happening, that's how I see woo. That's how I see harmful or dangerous faith traditions. Um, if it's enriching personally, if it builds community, if it promotes empathy, those are the signs of really exciting and healthy spiritual experiences. To me, I don't have like a, a resource to cite unless you want to read my first book, Finding God in the Waves, which is all about this stuff. Um, this is the rare question where I don't have a resource to point to. These are just the thoughts I'm puzzling through because uh, you and I are in such similar situations. Uh, only I'm not a PhD student. I'm a college dropout. So um, I don't know. Maybe Maybe you could give me some advice. Hi, Mike. I love your show. I hope you can tell us about the fires in the Amazon. Um, how bad is it? And what's causing it? What can be done about it? Thanks so much. Well, in a word, really bad. Uh, especially when you compare the burning this year to recent years. Um, although the burning isn't as bad compared to average rates of burn in the Amazon, because average rates incorporate um, the much more significant deforestation that was happening in the past that w was getting much better because of better environmental policy, because of international collaboration to protect and preserve uh, the rainforest. Um, here's what's happening, like, basically, is um, deforestation has traditionally been a big problem in the Amazon, which is huge. Uh, you're talking about something like roughly the, the basin that contains the Amazon. It's like about the size of the lower 48 states in the U.S. And if you're talking about, um, you know, the, the heavily forested portion, which has some of the highest biodiversity on Earth, you're still talking about something, you know, uh, I think six or eight times the size of the state of California that um, is spread across multiple countries in South America. Um, and that is the complexity. The problem we're seeing today is most intense in the part of the Amazon called the Amazonas in Brazil, where public policy has changed because of new political leadership. Basically, there's been an anti-environmentalist, pro-industrial movement in Brazil, and that's created a two-pronged problem. Number one, 
climate change is making the dry season more intense than it has been historically. And that's compounded by the fact that these uh, policy changes have increased industrial deforestation, which was in dramatic decline. Uh, and there's also an increase in subsistence burning to convert uh, rainforest forest land into arable soil for agriculture. And uh, that, that double threat between climate change and increased pressure on the forest is why these fires are so bad there. And they are bad. Uh, it's causing significant air quality problems, um, obvious loss of biodiversity. Now, you may have heard that uh, the Amazon produces 20% of the world's oxygen. That is technically true. And like one in five molecules released by a plant happens in the Amazon. But most of that gets reabsorbed in terms of like the amount of net oxygen from the Amazon is probably more like 5%. Um, so it's not like if the Amazon keeps getting burned, we're gonna, we won't be able to breathe, literally won't be able to breathe. Um, but the continued burning and deforesting of the Amazon is a big deal because the Amazon, among many reasons, is a huge carbon sink. All those trees are holding absolutely massive amounts of carbon. Um and so as we deforest it, that carbon goes in the atmosphere and accelerates more climate change. It creates more burning. And it's just a nasty cycle, uh, somewhat terrifying. But what I want you to hear <clears throat> is that very recently, the direction of deforestation and burning in the Amazon was on the right track. It was getting better and better every year. And a change in political leadership has reversed that and put us back on a bad trend. Folks, it is not... Help, hopeless, our relationship to the environment. Our actions and the people we elect create the policies that create our relationship to natural resources. So if you're in Brazil, you have a big role to play in lobbying for and electing different political leadership in Brazil. But everyone can do something. So I've got an article, uh, that several articles you should read. Uh, on this, on AskScienceMike.com this week. But one in particular is called Amazon Fires, Eight Ways You Can Help Stop the Rainforest Burning. This is from PRI, and it is uh, well-written and well-researched. It has eight specific things you can do, uh, which includes things like um, making a donation to uh, organizations that uh, protect Amazon land either by buying it outright or supporting uh, indigenous populations so that they don't have a, a, a subsistence need or a need to feed themselves by burning rainforest. Supporting indigenous people. Um, one thing that's really striking about uh, the change in Brazil is, is how hostile the current leadership in Brazil is to indigenous people in Brazil. As an American, I can't really lecture uh, about how indigenous people are treated as America might be one of the most uniquely insidious um, cultures in human history and how indigenous people have been treated. Um, but uh, it's still wrong the way the needs and rights of indigenous people in Brazil are being attacked and eliminated uh, by the current administration. Eating less beef and 
using less wood and paper, uh, those things uh, can all help. And of course, the big one is it's not actually people who cause a lot of the environmental calamities in our world. It is corporations trying to maximize their profits. So challenging corporations is a major part of protecting the Amazon. And you can learn more about that again on AskScienceMike.com. Go to the show notes for episode 202 and look for Amazon Fire's eight ways you can help stop the rainforest burning. Our last question is an email and it reads, what is the process of food decomposition in the ocean? I live on a boat and often throw organic food scraps overboard like kale leaf stems and chicken bones tonight. Figuring that I'm composting in some way, shape, or form, am I totally off base? Thanks for your great work, Ariane. Um, you're a little off base, unfortunately, Ariane. Um, ecosystems uh, that happen in water uh, have a really delicate balance of nutrients and nutrient cycles. Um, and so by law, you can't actually toss out food waste or organic waste like that unless you're 12 miles or more from the shore for really good reason. As people throw food items into the water, uh, you can cause blooms of um, microbial life and uh, algae that are really destructive to natural ecosystems. Um, Fertilizer and food waste can cause things like red tide uh, and devastate coastal communities and uh, the sea life that lives in those regions. So I would immediately stop throwing food scraps overboard, uh, assuming as you live on a boat, you're near a shore. If you're 12 miles out, that's another thing. But understand that food won't decompose the same way in the sea that it does on land. Things like um, fruit peels can last for decades in the water. Why? Uh, Food decomposes using oxygen, right? And so you throw these terrestrial food masses into aquatic ecosystems. And depending on where you are in the ocean, different types of organisms might reclaim some of those, um, especially soft tissues. Uh, But other things don't break down readily in the ocean at all and can last a really long time. I don't know about kale leaf stems. Uh, Those chicken bones could stick around for a while, though. Um, And that's the concern. Uh, So we want to avoid... We've been treating the oceans like our garbage cans for hundreds of years. Thousands, really. Uh, But as the human population has grown, the aggregate of our individual actions on boats adds up, and then uh, our industrial-scale pollution is devastating ocean ecosystems. So composting is a great idea, actually, but uh, find a place to compost on land where uh, those nutrients originated and where ideally if they aren't too close to the shore, they don't end up leaching into coastal ecosystems and damaging them. I'll leave a link for you in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com called Tips for Dealing with Waste at Sea, which is from Cornell. Cornell. Boy, you can take the boy out of the South, right? (laughs) Uh, Cornell Sailing. And uh, they have a lot of um, not only the the hard and fast law, 
but also some helpful guidelines on how to be compliant with those laws and what those laws are necessary. Uh, but no, don't don't throw food waste overboard. Uh, certainly within 12 miles of the shore, and ideally, not at all ever. Ask Science Mike would be impossible without everyone involved in making it happen. I'd like to specifically thank Brent Cradle for management services, Caitlin Hermstad for being the executive producer of Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Greg Nordeen for producing and doing uh, sound design and editing and Andrew Galecki for pre-production work and of course Jeb Bodiford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song finally I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon who not only make the show financially possible but pick the questions every week you can learn more about joining our Patreon community at AskScienceMike.com by clicking on the little Patreon icon thanks for listening everyone and I can't wait to talk with you next week 